Let's go, fellas. Hey, Bob Reba. Hey, hey, Bob Reba. everyone and welcome to On Location with Jared Cowan. This is Jared Cowan, if you didn't already know. We're all still at home, we're all still practicing physical distancing, we're wearing our masks if we have to go out in public, and I just want to say real quickly, please wear your masks when you go out. It's not a big deal to slip it on, and it helps prevent the spread of germs and keeps people safe. So, like Nike says, just do it. Please. Now to the matter at hand. If you caught our last episode, then you heard a great assemblage of 14 location professionals from across North America talking about some of their favorite locations or their most challenging locations in some cases. And as I said in episode 14, I sincerely appreciate all of the people who recorded and submitted segments. I also want to acknowledge the handful of location professionals that responded saying that they would love to participate but just didn't have the time. Some of them are homeschooling kids. Some are taking care of other family members and just couldn't break away. I just want them to know that I totally understand you you have to take care of the most important stuff first. So just know I, I appreciate your responses and I hope we'll get to talk location someday. Now, when it came to episode 14, we had a really nice response from the locations community, and it turned out that we couldn't fit all of the submissions into that episode. Uh, But we also didn't have quite enough to make up a full episode 15, so I reached out to a few more location professionals, and here we are, episode 15, in which you're going to hear some incredible location stories from 11 passionate location professionals spanning the globe from Seattle to Italy. As was the case for episode 14, aside from a couple of submissions, I didn't know what locations or what films or TV series my guests were going to discuss until I received the recordings. And just a friendly reminder that the audio is going to differ slightly between the segments as my guests were recording themselves. When I opened up the email containing the first story you're going to hear, I was thrilled to hear that this guest recorded her segment at the actual location, like we do on the usual format of the show. So let's head over to St. Paul, Minnesota, where you're going to hear about two of my favorite comedic films. Hi, my name is Ann Haley. I have been a location manager and a location scout in Minnesota for about 28 years. My first job was uh, crossing the bridge, and I was additional craft service. And uh, what I'm going to talk about is a, a couple of movies called Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. It's a sore spot with the town of Wabasha, but uh, we never filmed anything in Wabasha, Minnesota. The closest we got to Wabasha was Red Wing, and um, that was a drugstore. But otherwise, it was two hours away from Minneapolis, St. Paul. We had older actors, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, that could not make a trip to Wabasha every day or even a couple days. So the neighborhood that all the houses we're in, is on Hyacinth Street in St. Paul. The people that owned the house that Anne Margaret was in, um, Annabelle and John, were like the loveliest couple ever. And when we approached them at first, the house had cedar shake. It was brown cedar shake. And the first movie 
the production designer wanted uh, a white house with green shutters. And so we talked to them about putting white shutters or, or white clabbered and green shutters on the house. And then at the end of the movie, we would turn it back to cedar shake, which we did. Then when the second movie came, we had to go back to John, John and Annabelle and say, okay, here's the sequel, the, the second one. We need to put green shutters and white clabbered back on your house. And then at the end of this one, we'll put it back to the cedar shake. And so John and Annabelle said, yes, of course. And um, they were just such a lovely couple. They, uh, on Friday nights, they went to the Elks Club and went dancing. And every day while we were here, here filming, they walked around Lake Phelan hand in hand. They were just, I just loved them. They were like the nicest people ever. So um, at the end of the second movie, they decided that there probably was going to be a third movie. And so they decided, let's just keep the white clabbered and green shutters and then we'll be all ready for the third movie. So the third movie never happened um, because for a variety of reasons. And so as, as I'm standing here, this house uh, is still white, clabbered, and green shutters. And I think John and Annabelle finally sold it. I think Annabelle had died and John sold it last year. So I don't know who the new owners are, but um, this whole street looks great. It was always fun working with Walter because Walter always liked to do interesting stuff on set. He would bet on how many takes he would have. <laughs> he would bet on himself. He was a, he was kind of a, comp he was, he was a big gambler. We heard one of the reasons why he wanted to do this in Minnesota, this movie in Minnesota was because there was an Indian gambling casino called Mystic Lake. And on Sundays, his driver would take him to Mystic Lake Casino. He liked that. But for the takes, we'd all, you know, we'd be in the house and he'd be, he had a line and everybody would throw $10 into the pot. You know, I'd say seven, he'd say six, somebody say nine. And then it was, you know, he would do the line over and over again until they liked something that he, they liked at least one of the lines. And, um, and then it would, they, the assistant director would say, move on, moving on. And so whoever got the number of lines got the pot of money which wasn't usually me, and it usually wasn't Walter either, interestingly enough. Um, he also liked to ad-lib a lot, and so there was a Halloween trick-or-treating scene, and the kids would knock on the door, and he every time they opened, he opened the door, he would say something different. So one of the times, he picked up a coaster, he threw it in the kid's trick-or-treat bag, and he goes, here you go, kids, go get yourselves a drink. And then you'd hear, cut, and so we'd have to start all over again because you couldn't use that in the movie. Jack Lemon was kind and quiet and polite, and you never saw him coming, you know. And, and I would urge anybody that's sitting around during this pandemic to watch every movie he was ever in. He's just so great. But he was the guy that wouldn't ask for anything in his trailer. He would make his own sandwich at craft service. He had a large black poodle named Chloe, and sometimes he would come up and hand me the leash and say, here, hold Chloe while I go and work. And then he would go do his scene and he would do a couple lines. He would maybe do a third line. And then Howard Deutsch, the director, would want him to keep going. And he would look at Howard and he'd say, I think the third take was the best. And he'd spin around and get Chloe and uh, walk back to his trailer. He was just great. He called me doll all summer. Hey, doll. <laughs> Who does that? Burgess was older. 
uh, and sweet and just a delight. And he had the most fans come and ask for his autograph and also ask him to sign Burgess had albums. I don't know if he was a singer, um, but these people came with albums and they wanted Burgess to sign them, which he was more than happy to do. Um, there was a scene where Burgess was supposed to be dead and then Jack would ask him a question and Burgess would answer and he was supposed to be dead. So he was not supposed to answer. So how he said, Burgess, if somebody asks you a question, you don't answer because you're dead. So, um, they were just, they were all lovely. Sophia, Lauren, uh, made spaghetti for the whole crew on a Saturday. She stayed at the St. Paul Hotel and she had a kitchenette. And for some reason, she decided to make a pot of spaghetti for 200 people and serve it on a Saturday when we were doing the wedding scene. And uh, it was delicious. And uh, she and Walter had some wine with lunch. And it had taken her, I think, three or four hours to get ready with her wedding dress. And so after lunch, she went to George Folsey, the executive producer, and she wanted to go home. She's like, I'm just a little, I'm a little tired. I need to go home. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. (laughs) Hello, hello, and greetings from Chicago. I've never done a podcast before. So thank you for the invitation, Jared. My name is Nick Rafferty. I'm a Chicago-based location manager working in film and television. And I got my start about 15 years ago. I was in college, and I stumbled onto the set of Proof, a John Madden film. And from there, I did a little ER, uh, but everybody did a little ER back in the day. I also did a little Batman, a little Transformers, and... I was the location manager for four seasons on Chicago PD. More recently, I had the great privilege of working with Aaron Sorkin on The Trial of the Chicago 7, and then also with Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta on the upcoming Candyman reboot. But back to the question at hand, what is my favorite Chicago location? Well... One of my favorite Chicago locations is a building that I guarantee you'd know if you visited the city. I guarantee that if you took the requisite architectural boat tour down the river, someone stood up on the deck, pointed, and said, gee whiz, what are those corncob towers? Well, uh, those corncob towers are Marina City, designed by legendary Chicago architect, Bertrand Goldberg. Uh, He was quite visionary at the time. They were uh, apartment towers stacked upon a parking garage, stacked upon shops and restaurants. There was a mezzanine level with a gym and a grocery store. And of course, you could just pull your boat up and go see a show because there was a movie theater and a bowling alley and a skating rink. And almost immediately, Uh, Marina City captured the imagination of Chicagoans, tourists, and, of course, filmmakers. In fact, in 1965, before the complex was even finished, a film came out called Mickey One. So Mickey One is this underappreciated, underseen cult classic in Chicago. It's a black-and-white film directed by Arthur Penn and stars Warren Beatty. And this is Warren Beatty 
before Bonnie and Clyde. He's young, he's dashing, think James Dean or early Marlon Brando, and he plays a stand-up comic. And of course, Chicago is famous for its comedy scene. And he's on the run from the mob, and Chicago is famous for the mob. It is this crazy, bizarre, surrealist romp through the city. And uh, Marina City features rather prominently. We visit an apartment inside the towers, and then most memorably, perhaps, there is this finale where the Warren Beatty character comes upon this sculpture, or it's more of a contraption, uh, that's set up with Marina City in the backdrop, and it kind of represents his psychosis as a comedian. Anyway, Mickey One is a film you absolutely must check out. So Marina City's next star turn came in 1980 with the Steve McQueen film The Hunter. And in it, McQueen plays a bounty hunter. He's running through the city, chasing bad guys, kicking butt. And the Marina City sequence is actually a car chase. It's a car chase in the parking garage. So these cars are whipping around corners, going higher and higher. And one of them careens off the side and into the river. It's an amazing stunt and one that we actually recreated in 2006 for Allstate Insurance. Right across the river from Marina City is an advertising agency, Leo Burnett. And I can only imagine the art directors were looking back at that parking garage, remembering that scene, and thought to themselves, my God, that would be a damn good car insurance commercial. So, uh, so we did it again. More recently, last summer, I had the pleasure of working with Nia DaCosta, the director of Candyman, and she spent a lot of time in Chicago getting to know the city, doing research, and it wasn't long before she stumbled upon Marina City, and I got a call one day, and she said, Nick, I want to do a kill there, and I said, okay, and we started scouting apartments. Now, Everybody lives in their own little world, and we found a firefighter who had, like, a pet boa constrictor. I don't even think the thing was legal. We went into a flight attendant's apartment, and she had painted everything pink, and it was pretty and perfect, but not quite right. We were looking for something a little bit more original, something that had the original finishes, the original floor plan, and we found it. But the way we shot it was building to building. The camera was looking in. It's an homage to Hitchcock, to Rear Window, and I honestly can't wait to see it in theaters with a big tub of popcorn the way movies were meant to be. Thanks. Hi, my name is Enrico Latella. I'm a supervising location manager, born and based in Rome, Italy. I've been working in the film industry for over 25 years for both Italian and international projects. I had the honor to work with many great directors and production designers. I worked on Mission Impossible 3, Love Aquatic, Angels and Demons, Avengers, All the Money in the World, Sense8, Tenet, John Wick 2, Mary Madeleine, and many others. As you know, Italy offers so many beautiful locations, wonderful towns, just to name a few, Rome, Venice, Milan, Naples, Bologna, but also mountains, lakes, coast, and of course archaeological sites, sometimes difficult to obtain for films. So I had many challenging experiences in the past. Six Underground was the latest and certainly the most challenging one I ever worked on. Filming car chases, endless car chases, explosions and acrobatic parts in the historic center of Florence and Siena was unbelievable. We spent almost uh, one month in Tuscany. The cars run in the most suggestive corners of these cities, 
from the Fizzi courtyard to the gardens of Palazzo Pitti, the bridges over the Arno River, and Piazza del Campo in Siena, famous for the Palio. In particular, I remember the big effort to get the permits to do a parkour scene on top of the Duomo Dome in Florence. This architectural masterpiece was designed and built by Brunelleschi in the first half of the 15th century. It is among uh, the highest expression of human ingenuity. The ascent and descent are basically narrow and very dark corridors built uh, by the workers for the workers to be used for maintenance. They had never been thought as a place is open to the public, so there are therefore some steep passages during the ascent of the 460 steps. Going up, you can feel history. It's amazing. And you can also see wonderful frescoes by Vasari. But when you get on top, uh, the view is one of the best I've ever seen. I remember we shot uh, at dawn, uh, reduced crew, and this talented parkour guy was running down the edge of the dome, simultaneously filmed by a chopper and a drone. The images were stunning and unique. I remember it was a great day. The next day, all the newspaper talk about this shooting, of course, both for its uniqueness, but also because the chopper flying at six in the morning at very low altitude over the Duomo had woken up uh, most of the city then. In the end, everything went well. The complaints ended after a few days and uh, was a nice experience. Thank you, Gerald, for inviting me to be part of your beautiful project. Stay home, stay safe, and ciao from Rome. Hi, my name is Dave Drummond. I'm a location scout and location manager based out of Seattle. I've been doing location work up here for about 15 years now. Do a lot of crossover between films and TV shows and lots of TV commercials. Basically anything that needs location work up here in Washington State. Some of the projects I've worked on include Grey's Anatomy and its spin-off show Station 19. A recent movie called Where'd You Go Bernadette with Kate Blanchett. Another movie called Captain Fantastic starring Viggo Mortensen. But one of the highlights for me personally was a few years ago getting the opportunity to work on Twin Peaks The Return. It was an amazing opportunity to return to the neighboring towns of North Bend and Snoqualmie, Washington, both that are just a little ways outside Seattle, where the original Twin Peaks television series filmed over 25 years ago. I was a big fan of that original show when I was back in college, so it was a, a real thrill to be a part of The Return when it happened. Twin Peaks, you know, is just such a cult show and a, a real phenomenon in those, those interim years. Um, the town of North Bend and the town of Snoqualmie have fully embraced their role in that original series. Um, there's an annual convention and thousands of yearly visitors and bus tours of the, of the old locations and all that sort of stuff. Um, so they were in general as a community were really excited to participate when the decision was made to go, to go back again 25 years later. One of the most iconic locations, probably the iconic location from the original series was the Double R Diner. The small town cafe where Agent Dale Cooper went for his damn fine cup of coffee and slice of cherry pie. Early in the days of prep and in, in the sort of pre-pre-production phase as I'm reaching out to folks, obviously one of my first stops was at the Double R. I went up and had a cup of coffee with the owner. It was um, not the same owner. It, he had, didn't own it 25 years ago, but... Um, but obviously was was fully aware of the significance of the location in the original series. It was kind of comical the first time we spoke because I wasn't technically supposed to reveal what the project was, 
but the internet rumors had already been out about the return of the show, and and uh, it was obvious what we were talking about. Um, and luckily, they, they were excited to participate. It did take some work to get the place ready, though. The interior had changed uh, significantly over the years, and so we had, we engaged with with ownership to to really remodel it. And we went back and gutted the interior and and remodeled it so it resembled the way it looked back in the '90s. And and the the result was. Gorgeous. I mean, the sort of wood-paneled classic diner with a wraparound counter is really gorgeous and, and uh, made those changes permanent. So as we walked away at the end of production, uh, that everything stayed in place so fans can now go and, and experience it just like it was. As a fan of the show, I mean, as a nerdy fan from, from the 90s, it was a really a special treat for me. I never would have dreamt I could have would have been there to watch them shoot, you know, to see the the same actresses and the same characters in their waitress costumes slinging coffee uh, at the double R. It was really cool. They also um, had kind of neat little background images that, that the owner of the of the double R got some screen time as the cook that's uh, slinging potatoes and other things in the back of the kitchen. A sort of epilogue to the shooting at the double R itself happened to us a, a few weeks later. I was scouting for some pickup shots we needed uh, right near the edge of town, just outside of North Bend. There was a little spot where a trail emerged from the woods with a view of a railroad trestle in the background, and it was perfect for just a couple things we needed. There were only a couple of rustic residences nearby, which I left letters with them, giving them a heads up about our filming plans. I got a call back from one of them. It turned out to be the home of the little old lady who was the original owner of the Double R. Long since retired, uh, but she had been around during the initial series, Back in the 90s, I stopped back by her house to introduce myself, and she invited me in and showed me a bunch of pictures of her with the original cast and crew and memorabilia and just reminisced for a while about those days, which was really, really cool to be able to listen to her talk about it. At the end of our time together, she then said she had a gift for me, and she went into her kitchen and came out and gave me a homemade cherry pie, which was the sort of perfect ending to my work on Twin Peaks. Hi, everybody. My name is Peggy Pridemore, and I've been a location manager in Washington, D.C. for 32 years. I mostly work on feature films, such as Argo, Minority Report, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, Jason Bourne, Night at the Museum 2, Burn After Reading, and many others. D.C. has five well-known icons that filmmakers want in their scenes, if not all five, at least one in every scene. And they are the U.S. Capitol Building, the White House, the Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument, and the Lincoln Memorial. I film at the Lincoln Memorial more than any of the others because it's uh, beautiful and historic. And also, you get two looks in one. In one direction, you look at the Lincoln Memorial, And in the other, you look at the Washington Monument that is reflected in the reflecting pool. And all the monuments in D.C. are governed by the National Park Service. The Park Service is infamous for having many, many difficult rules and hoops to jump through in order to film. And D.C. has even more than other places. Like, for example, at the Lincoln Memorial, if you want to film inside the chamber of the Lincoln Memorial where the statue is, you can only do it with special permission 
And then you have to have only five people inside at one time, and that includes the crew and the actors. And there can be no dialogue, no sound equipment, and no lights. And also, you have to film it between 11 p.m. and 8 a.m. And these rules are made so that film companies do not get in the way of the tourist, basically, because they belong to the people. Now, my favorite scene that I have ever filmed at the Lincoln Memorial is one that you might know. It's the scene where Forrest Gump is giving his anti-war speech on the stage, and and, uh, you can't hear him. The plug gets pulled. And then at the end of it, he hears somebody yell to him from the crowd. He looks out, and he sees that it is the love of his life, Jenny. And he jumps off the stage and goes trying to run to her through the crowd, and she tries to run through the crowd on the side of the pool, and she can't get through the crowd, so she jumps in the reflecting pool, and then Forrest jumps in the reflecting pool, and they tread across the water, and they meet in the reflecting pool. Well, as you might imagine, it was very difficult to get the Park Service to let us do that scene, and it took me weeks and weeks of cajoling and negotiating and paring down the scene and fitting into their requirements, which was no equipment in the water whatsoever and no other people in the water at all, just the two actors. So that's why it looks the way it does. It looks kind of uh, like it's kind of far away, and it was, and it still works, of course. (laughs) So one cool moment of that day was uh, way before we started filming. It was at 6 a.m., and I decided I'd go, I'd better go look at the tent housing the extras, which we had 2,000 extras dressed like hippies, and I wanted to make sure they were okay. So I go in the tent, and everybody is in a really good mood, even though it's dark and it's cold outside, and they had to start at 2 a.m. at the parking location, which was off-site. And I go walking through the crowd. Wow, why is everybody so happy? I get up to the front, and There is a party going on at the front of the tent. There's a musician playing a guitar, a guy with bongo drums, and about two dozen people dressed like hippies dancing all through the tent. So, needless to say, I knew it was going to be a good day. All right, thanks for letting me share, and thank you, Jared, and thanks for listening, and hey, you guys, take care out there during this horrible pandemic. I hope you all stay healthy and well. Take care. Bye. Hi, my name is Alex Giannopoulos. I am a location manager in New Mexico, mostly the Albuquerque area. I've been in the business in the location department for almost 15 years. I started out as a location PA, just helping dump trash. Um, I moved up pretty quickly to becoming a regular set person, then a scout, then an assistant location manager, and finally a location manager. I've worked on, um, I've been the manager of things such as uh, Creed II, the show Roswell, um, a movie called The Wave a movie coming up called Silk Road. But for most of my career, I've been a scout. And as you know, that's the person who goes out and looks for everything. And, and you know, being in the locations department can be um, you know, like a lot of fun, but it's, it's also a lot of work. 
And it's a lot of things like pandering to people, um, whether it's production designers or producers or homeowners or people in government and bureaucrats, you know, and just trying to get the production going as smoothly as possible, being in charge of all the logistics. But, you know, being a scout um, and a manager, mostly, but when you're a scout, what I loved about it was um, being part of the creative process in some ways. Specifically, in those days, I, I worked for several seasons on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and um, lots of TV. I did this, the first season of Preacher um, movies like Lone Survivor. The most rewarding thing was definitely Breaking Bad. Um, that's a show that has, it's really unique because it, it's, well, it was a huge hit and it took place in Albuquerque where it was also filmed. So um, subsequently, all the locations became tourist attractions for Albuquerque, which was pretty unique. They still are. And, um, and not only that, but they're super memorable to the fans and everything. A couple of stories from that, that era that I'm particularly proud of. One of them was there was a episode in season five where there was a big train heist and you know trains are very difficult to film especially in tv because the train company is not very interested in helping you out and you know movies that shoot on trains they usually have to you know um, find a piece of track that isn't being used or, or or it just takes a long time to get that permitted tv you don't have a lot of time and they called us saying they wanted to do a train heist um, we ended up finding a small strip of track between santa fe and lamey new mexico that was privately owned so i took vince gilligan there who i respect a lot he is an you know amazing writer and a very humble person somebody to idolize as a writer he he came out and he um we didn't we didn't see a script and he saw it and he basically pitched us the whole idea he integrated the location that we found, the trestle that was nearby a road. He kind of just spelled out the story right in front of me before anyone saw a script. That was probably the first person to hear this idea outside the writer's room, me and the other people that were there, and I felt really special. Um, another story is um, on the final episode, you know, um, they gave a final episode, the very final season. At the beginning of the season, they gave me a note to say, you know, they said, Alex, we need to find a bad guy's hideout. Um, it couldn't really be anything, which really doesn't help when they say it could be anything. But <laughs> they said, um, you know, it just has to be something breaking baddy. They use it as a verb and something creepy and no pressure. But it would be the final shot of the whole show, um, potentially. You know, there was, it was kind of a whole world of pressure on my shoulders. I looked the whole season, showed them all kinds of stuff, an abandoned insane asylum, my mo- old motels, weird compounds. Finally, when I was looking for something else, I came across a um, old lumber yard that was just hidden away in the north North Valley of Albuquerque. You know, I, sh- I showed them pictures. They flew over the next day. They, they there was a pit in there. If you saw the episode, Jesse, the character, was in a pit. They wrote that in. You know, so in both those cases, I it definitely felt like because of me, the show looked different, and everyone's involved in the creative process. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I am also a filmmaker. I um, write and produce my own movies. Um, They're shorts, and I promise you every single one of them have amazing locations. A lot of them that I found for other shows and or other stuff that I've written to because I knew they were great locations. You can find them on my my YouTube called Alex Genop or at ultimatingpictures.com. All right. Thanks very much. Um, Have a good um, quarantine. (laughs) Laters. 
Hi, my name is Stefan Nikolov and I'm a film location manager based in Chicago. I'm originally from Bulgaria. I came to the United States in 1994 and I enrolled in a film school here in Chicago, uh, Columbia College. And I graduated two years later with a degree in film and video. And I was very lucky to start working right away on a film production. It was a movie called Mercury Rising with Bruce Willis. I was a, I was a locations intern and I have been doing locations ever since. I got my first job as a manager in 2006 on a small movie called The Merry Gentleman. It's been very, very busy in Chicago for the past 10 years. There's a new very large studio called Cinespace that has uh, just very big and there's production offices there and film stages and sound stages. So we've been doing a lot of a lot of work out of there. I do mostly movies and um, TV shows. I would get every now and then a call for a commercial, but uh, I don't do that many commercials. Some of the projects that I have worked on three years ago, I worked on season one of the TV show The Exorcist for Fox. Season two, they moved it to Canada, I think. Last year, I worked on a pretty big series for um, for Amazon, produced by, by Amazon Studios. It was called Utopia, and it was based on the English on the English series Utopia. And this one is supposed to come out, I think, at some point this fall. And right after that, I worked on on another on another series called Station Eleven. We filmed first two episodes of the show, and then this whole coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus thing happened so we're just waiting right now on standby to see when do we when are we going to continue working on it but the most famous the most my most famous project seems to be the tv show shameless that films here in that has been filming here in chicago and in la of course but i have been uh, i started on the tv show shameless on on the pilot actually i was a, i was a scout and then I was uh, I became a location assistant, and then I was an assistant location manager, and then on season four, I want to say, or maybe season five, I became the location manager for all the filming here in Chicago. And the the, the way Shameless works is um, they film a lot of the interior scenes in LA, and then um, the producers come twice uh, twice a year here to Chicago to film a lot of the exterior scenes. And one of the most exciting locations that we have had on Shameless here in Chicago and probably the one that I'm most proud of, um, it was on season seven or season eight, I want to say two summers ago, I think. I got the call from the production designer and she said, uh, Stefan, we have a big scene coming up in Chicago and it involves uh, the character Ian Gallagher, who is gay, and we have to stage a big uh, gay rally somewhere uh, somewhere in downtown Chicago and uh, as part of the rally we have to display a big banner that says um, God is gay and he loves you and we'll have a uh, police uh, police uh, cars and a lot of protesters and, and uh, it's just gonna be very a very very busy scene so I started scouting right away course and uh, I, I sent I sent them several options and no none seemed to be none seemed to work very well until I I showed them Daily Plaza. Daily Plaza is one of the main squares, one of the main plazas here at downtown Chicago. It's right next to the Daily 
daily uh, daily center building, which is again it's a very prominent building here in Chicago. And the tricky part was uh, the subject matter. It wasn't just another scene uh, with a lot of people protesting, but um, again we asked to display um, the banner, which uh, which was huge. It was about thirty feet long by fifteen feet wide. I want to say displaying you know this message about god so we didn't know how would how would people feel about it how would the city feel about it um i contacted the film office the 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 city the the plaza everybody and um i have to say that i was very proud that i did not face any opposition on the contrary people were very excited about the subject People were um, very encouraging. The, the city officials, the city offices, they they just gave us the go ahead. They 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 gave us the green light, and we ended up filming the scene there. We had about uh, three hundred extras, probably. Uh, it was it was a very big scene. Again, we had uh, police cars. It was uh, very loud. Um, the scene actually involved Dion. Uh, yelling, uh, God is gay, God is gay, God is gay. There were a lot of people, like just regular pedestrians who would stop by and then we had a few people that they would just scream back at him saying, God is not gay. Um, don't don't listen to what uh, to what this guy is saying. So it, it was it was kind of funny in a way. But at the same time I was I was a little nervous until the last moment because I just didn't know what would be the reaction of, of, of regular people who would see this. Um, but at the end, it uh, again, it worked out great. Uh, you can still see it in, I'm not sure if it was season seven or season eight, but it was a fun scene. We really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm I'm very proud how, how it worked out at the end. So yeah, that's it. Well, thank you for listening and um, enjoy it. Bye-bye. Hey, John. This is Elisabetta recording from um, Rome, Italy. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, it's a very interesting project and I heard many, many interesting stories. So a little bit about myself. I have been working in the film industry for approximately um, 20 years. The last 10, I have um, focused more and more on location work, which I really enjoy. Italy, it's... Its history, its charming towns and its beautiful landscape offer an amazing variety of locations. And uh, let me just say that we all hope that um, international productions will come back as soon as possible and that we can all go back safely to do what we love doing. So in 2017, I worked on a TV series called Trust, created and directed by Danny Boyle, uh, which tells the true story of the kidnapping which took place in the 70s of Paul Getty Jr., grandson to Paul Getty, by the hands of the Italian mafia. It was decided to shoot all the scenes regarding um, young Getty's captivity and the relationship that he formed with his kidnappers in, in an area in the south of Italy, uh, between two regions, um, Basilicata and Calabria, very close to the actual uh, area where the kidnapping took place in the 70s. We spent many months down south Italy, and as we went along, parts of the script and episodes were still being written. As a very last moment decision, it was um, confirmed that 
the dramatic scene when Gail Getty, played by Hilary Swank and Paul Getty Jr., finally meet uh, after his release, would take place on a panoramic road above the coastal road of a town called Maratea in a region called Basilicata. The peculiarity of this panoramic road is that it's built on top of a mountain uh, called Mount San Biagio and it, it's overlooked by a statue, a huge white statue of the Redeeming Christ, which is second uh, in size only to the more famous statue of the Christ in Rio de Janeiro. All in all, it's a, it's a really stunning location. And from the top, you can see for miles and miles where the green landscape meets the deep blue of the Tyrrhenian Sea. Really, really beautiful place. Um, at the top of the road stands the Basilica of San Biagio, which is a beautiful sanctuary, which still to date is used for um, weddings and various local celebrations. So we had to shoot the scene where Gail, who was... Paul Jr.'s mother sets off on a journey to rescue her son in the south of Italy. Um, in reality, this took place in December, so in full winter. So we see Gail driving through various winter landscapes and um, the challenge of shooting on um, the panoramic road of Maratea was that we had to cover uh, large portions of the road with actual snow. Also, the um, art department um, was asked to build a petrol station at the top of the panoramic road, which is the place where Getty Jr. would um, be dropped off by his kidnappers. I was a location manager um, working in the south of Italy. So we got all the permits uh, that we needed from the local town hall and the local authorities, and we managed to get the road um, closed down so we could work with special effects and art department and prepare the location. My team and I also um, had several conversations with the priest of the Basilica of San Biagio to make sure that no celebrations were booked in that period um, so that we would have no interference with the shooting. Unfortunately, we received um, the news that this scene had to be pushed up on the schedule and so everything got anticipated and we had very little time to prep. We started working day and night to make sure that the location, the set, would be ready. In the new schedule, uh, we were supposed to shoot on a Monday and Tuesday. Problem was that the previous Sunday, um, a wedding had been booked for months uh, in the sanctuary. So I had um, several meetings with the bride and groom um, and both families to try and find um, a, a solution which would allow us to shoot. And of course, we didn't want to spoil uh, such a happy event that uh, these two families had been planning for months. Well, I have to I have to admit that the first meeting we had with the bride and groom uh, was pretty tense. Um, of course, she wasn't happy at all about us being there with all our machinery and snow and uh, the trucks and everything else, the sets being built. The bride was born and raised in the area and it had been a lifetime dream of hers to have a large wedding on top of the panoramic road and here we were. I tried to offer several solutions to reduce the number of cars which would, uh, which on the Sunday would drive with all the guests up on, on top of the fresh snow and 
after several meetings, um, I gave her my assurance that we would do anything in our power to make sure that her her day, the, the wedding ceremony, uh, would go by smoothly. And, you know, that this would all be just a, um, a funny tale to tell to friends and family uh, later on. As much as we wanted to make sure that everything went smoothly with um, the filming, we also took at heart a bit the story of this girl. So on the wedding day, and bear in mind, we'd been to that point, we'd been working literally night and day, building at night sets and uh, putting down snow during the day. And we decided that we would sort of um, take part to the wedding and make sure that everything went smoothly. So my team and I met and we literally offered the bride and groom a um, an on-site car parking service. So um, we, we all um, helped in to greeting the guests and making sure that they would park only on certain areas. The ones who could walk, they would be given a parking area sort of at the bottom of the road so they would walk up. And of course, we would let the elderly children or the disabled being driven to the way to the top. But this way, we contained how many cars were actually treading on the snow. Um, the guests uh, started arriving and uh, all in a sudden they would uh, the effect was pretty amazing because they would um find themselves surrounded by snow which was incredible finally the bride arrives everyone reaches the church um and the wedding went as smoothly as as ever with the bonus of no parking problems at all because we'd been helping out so while the wedding took place, we were in other sections of the road uh, working with snow machines. And when finally uh, the ceremony was over, the bride and groom um, drove down to where we were um, working with the special effects team and um, wanted to have their picture taken on the snow um, with myself and the team. And they couldn't believe and and how relieved they were that a potential disaster wedding changed into such a unique memory and um, not only um, because they were surrounded by snow which which in that part of Italy is extremely rare but also because it's been it was such a challenge and that to make it happen and so that uh, when in the end everything went went well I mean everybody was just relieved and happy so we managed to shoot on the Monday and Tuesday as planned, uh, though the wind had picked up and the shooting conditions were hard. And um, considering the very little time we had to prep and the wedding situations, um, it could have been a potential tragedy. But all in all, you know, it was one of those typical situations where film crew blend in with local realities and we make this magic happen uh, surrounded by uh, a beautiful panoramic location. So this is a memory I thought I would share with you. Um, for us location managers working in a team and often your team is not only the people that you actually work with but it's also the local people, local authorities, the, the residents, uh, the the shops, the businesses, the hotels, everybody that can sort of blend in and pitch in with what they can to make sure that the extraordinary magic that comes out of filming becomes a success. 
Hello, my name is Adrian Knight. I'm a location manager based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I'm going to tell a little story about the those magic moments in pre-production when we're working on a feature or any other project and we're in the van with some really cool creative people and uh, some things start to crystallize. Um, so a quick background on um, my history in the business. Uh, I started as a child actor, mostly doing voice work, dubbing uh, projects from all around, all around the world in, into English. So lots of animated series and stuff that I dubbed into English as a kid uh, here in Montreal. And then uh, after I finished university, I joined the production side of things, working as a uh, first as an assistant photographer and then a um, location scout and scout, uh, sorry, and then location manager since uh, 1994. Some of the films I've worked on are... Uh, Battlefield Earth, uh, Timeline, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Blades of Glory, Life of Pi, On the Basis of Sex more recently, and a bunch of TV series in the last few years it seems to be with streaming. That's the, the new normal. So <laughs> uh, my story is about a time uh, several years ago. It was actually already 20 years ago now uh, where um, producer uh, Bernie Williams, may he rest in peace, had sent uh, Frank Oz and screenwriter Lem Dobbs up to Montreal to start to see some locations and to try and iron out the script for the score way back in uh, 2000. It was released in 2001. I only worked on the prep phase, uh, unfortunately. I had something else lined up for the rest of that year. So um, Frank Oz and uh, Lem Dobbs uh, my, and myself uh, were in the van in Montreal one winter's day, uh, driving from place to place. I was showing them potential locations for the script that was still kind of up in the air. There were things that weren't working. It wasn't coming together just right. Frank was worried about uh, the main character, Nick's uh, motivation in the film and he didn't want it to be too much like the uh, Thomas Crown Affair, which had just come out recently uh, prior to uh, this film being uh, being released. So anyways, we were driving around from place to place in Montreal, uh, heading towards uh, old Montreal. And as Frank and Lem tried to figure out what Nick's motivation would be and how he could get away with doing one last job and not getting caught, I I guess against my own better judgment, I chimed in and I suggested something. And they were quite receptive, and it was great, because the vibe was so good in the van that I figured I would try my chance, which is not something we'd normally do. But anyways, at that time, we were right at the corner of uh, McGill Street in Old Montreal, looking southeast, and I pointed to the Canada Customs Building, which is the actual Canada Customs Building at that site in Old Montreal. And I said to the guys, like, what if the object that Nick is asked to go steal is actually in transit from two very disparate locations and gets seized here in Montreal? And that's why he figures that he can get away with this gig because it's an inside job that, you know, no country, no customs office would want to admit that they had something stolen from within the confines of their own customs uh, fortress, if you will. So uh, there was a sort of dead silence in the van just after that and then this moment of excitement and this banter that just went on and on and on and we talked and talked well mostly Lem and, and Frank obviously 
just kept on talking all the way to uh, Hudson, which was the next uh, location that we were going to go visit, which is about 40 minutes out of uh, downtown core. And it was just brilliant. It was just such a wonderful moment. And it just, for me, uh, is something that comes back often. It, it makes me think of the magic of cinema. And so if you ever watch the film again and you see that approach uh, to the Customs House, well, that's the actual Canada Customs House in Montreal. <laughs> and that's where the film ended up being shot, at least the exterior scenes, some interiors, and a lot of it was also built on stage. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the film. I hope you enjoyed this little anecdote and uh, take care of yourselves and each other. Hi, my name is Joaquin Prang. I'm a location manager and I've been working in the movie and TV business since 1998. My credits include the films Birdman, Dark Knight Rises, and most recently Dark Waters. I want to tell you about one of the first films I location managed, an indie feature called The King, written and directed by James Marsh, who would go on to direct The Theory of Everything. The King is a dark and disturbing film. It's about a young man who gets out of the Navy and goes to find his estranged father who's living in Corpus Christi, Texas. He discovers his dad has become a Pentecostal preacher and started a new life with a new family and wants nothing to do with him. Through the course of the film, our main character, Elvis, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, ends up killing his stepbrother, played by a young Paul Dano. James, the director, was adamant that the most pivotal location in the film was what he called the Wasteland. The Wasteland is a spot that Elvis finds while he's driving around delivering pizzas. It first captures his attention in a dreamy montage sequence. Like a lot of the film, it's more about the look, the feel, the texture than anything that's said. Elvis goes to dump his stepbrother's dead body at the wasteland and later returns near the end of the film to essentially baptize himself in the lake that's at the wasteland. James was insistent that the wasteland was the most important location and I think this is because he'd found the real wasteland. He found it while he was on a cross-country drive looking for what he called the most depressing place in America. He stopped when he got to Corpus Christi, Texas. Corpus is a small South Texas city that's probably most famous for being the home of singer Selena. It combines a sort of Jimmy Buffett beach vacation vibe with the omnipresent visuals of oil refineries and petroleum plants off in the distance. When you drive into town, there's a noticeable stench in the air. You can almost taste it. And the wasteland was very much reflective of that. It was a place where people dumped trash. Children's toys, hypodermic needles, couches, TV sets... The ground was seeping with some sort of toxic sludge. Now, even though we, the movie takes place in Corpus Christi, Texas, we shot most of the film in Austin. And for scheduling reasons, we didn't think we were going to be able to shoot the real wasteland. Beyond that, there was a small matter of the fact that it was a toxic waste dump and definitely not the kind of place you'd want to bring a film crew. I began scouting alternatives for the wasteland and started with real dumps in Austin, Texas. James wasn't a fan of any of them. They didn't look cinematic enough. Like a lot of indie films, financing for The King wasn't secured when we began pre-production. We actually had to stop halfway through pre-pro and take a four-month hiatus. That gave me some time to think about the wasteland and where I might find it. I decided I needed to find some place where nature and industry intersected, where man had taken the earth and scarred it. Like a lot of great location finds, I ultimately stumbled upon it by just driving around. I was driving through the farmland of Austin, Texas, when I found a couple farms that had livestock, horses, cows, but they were also doing things like making cement. One of them even had a rock quarry. It seemed like the right kind of place. 
stopped at a property and asked the guy if he knew of anything like what I was describing, a wasteland. He said he didn't have anything, but I should check out his neighbor's property. He had a crater lake. A what, I said? A crater lake. There's an asteroid or something that hit near the back of his property. You should go check it out. So I drove over, introduced myself, and sure enough, at the back end of this guy's property was a huge hole in the ground. It looked like the surface of the moon. It was perfect. Because it was a rocky terrain, we could actually fill some of it up with water and make our own man-made lake. This is where the body gets stashed. It really was a eureka moment. One of those times when you feel like you've definitely found it and that the director will share your vision. And sure enough, he did. James thought it was perfect too. Now, I'm not going to say it made the movie, but it was one of my proudest finds. Years later, I got an email from someone that had found me on the internet through IMDb. It was a young man that was living in Corpus while we were shooting the movie. He was sort of obsessed with the film and said he'd been able to find every filming location except for the wasteland and really wanted to know where it was. There was a real sense of validation with that, that the location I had found meant something to somebody else, that I had some sort of creative vision that paid off in the collaborative art that is filmmaking. Ultimately, that's what it's all about, and that's why I love my job. Good morning, everybody. I'm Liz Goldsmith, a Chicago location manager, sharing with you some of my morning and my perspective for Jared Cowan's On Location podcast. Right now, in the midst of confinement, I'm about to take you on an audio tour of an established filming location world right here in Chicago. It's a world I'm proud to have helped create, and I'm eager to share the backstory of how this all came about 11 years ago on a little television pilot that no one dreamed would win so many hearts and garner so much Emmy Award acclaim. It's a little engine that could story, the tale of an improbable pilot called Shameless and how its Chicago locations play a huge role in the success of the show. In the fall of 2009, I was hired to do preliminary scouting for a television pilot. As is often the case with TV pilots, our team of scouts didn't have a lot of detail to go on. In fact, we had no script and no outline, just the merest description offered up third hand by the local producer who had hired us. Now, when we began scouting, it all seemed very straightforward. Seemed to us like another ho-hum, been there, done that scouting assignment for a pilot that didn't yet have legs. Blue collar houses, no problem. We could find these locations in our sleep. Squat bungalows or neat brook cottages with statuary. Maybe an American flag planted conspicuously in our front yards. It could be Queens. It could be New Jersey. Who cares, right? Producing director came to town and our expectations blew up in smithereens right before our eyes. That new sheriff in town? Mark Mylod. A cheerful producing director who arrived in Chicago that fall, armed with a clear and detailed concept of this hero neighborhood. Suddenly, all of our Archie Bunker meets Mike Lee cliches went out the window. With Mark firmly at the wheel in pre-production, we now had conceptual clarity. We had depth and we had focus. We dove headlong into scouting some of Chicago's poorest neighborhoods, 105% African-American, 105% desperately poor. Communities which have been disenfranchised and neglected for as long as anyone can remember. Communities that consistently make the news for crime stats and cynical politics. But when it comes to scripted media productions, please. No one, and I mean no one, had ever shot a full scripted network series in a desperately poor Chicago community before we did. We had something special on our hands. But even then, 
couldn't quite grasp how unique the show was going to be. Anyway, the scout team fanned out, blanketing south and west side neighborhoods, door knocking, meeting and greeting, hoping somebody, anybody, would read our leaflets. This is how, how it all starts to take shape, the glamorous underbelly of Hollywood. Still, how hard should this have been? We only needed three principal characters' houses close to one another. And for that matter, since we were technically not going to be filming interior locations in Chicago, because these interiors were being built as sets on the Warner Brothers' back lot, this didn't seem like a tall order. Not so fast. They had to be the right houses. No doubt, dear podcast fans, you may be wondering, what makes the right location? Why don't we just pick one and stick with that one? Glad you asked. First, the location informs where the character lives, works, and most definitely, in the case of the Gallaghers, where they imbibe, thieve, and connive. The location has to provide clues and information, and it has to do so rather efficiently. Remember, small and large screen cinema is a medium of show, not tell. The Anchor Hero House shows viewers that the Gallaghers are poor, the house is impossibly small, How can a grown-ass man and his six kids live under one roof? Still, small enough that you can sense that there will be family friction inside, and close enough to the houses next door that we know everyone's in everyone else's business. But the house also has to appear somewhat tidy and proud. That's the next clue. Someone in that family is the grown-up in the room. Someone cares about appearances, even if it's not a parent in the family, like Frank Gallagher. So we found the right block on South Homan Avenue in the Chicago neighborhood of Lawndale, at the end of which was a tiny pocket playground and a freight rail berm. The berm conveniently created a cul-de-sac, which allowed us to have more control over live action filming on the street and sidewalk. It also gave the street more urban grit than just the poverty of the residents themselves. The entire block felt as though our characters could actually live there. Exhibit A. The Gallagher House, just 1,000 square feet of modest and nondescript Chicago life. So unremarkable, in fact, that you could drive by it in a half second and fail to miss what Mark Mylod saw the day we were in a scout van together, as he waved his imperious finger and asked me to literally leap out of the van and go investigate. That became the trademark Shameless Locations M.O. Most productions frown on location scouts cold scouting, but of course, we were shameless, both in front of and behind the camera. Before the homeowner had time to catch her breath, my toe was inside the front door and the ragtag scouting group had descended upon her 15-foot by 18-foot living room, all of us trying to make our case for why her home would make the perfect Gallagher family home. After several conversations, a jointly executed location contract and acceptable offers of compensation, we had landed our first big fish, a suitable location for Shameless's miscreant and scheming anti-hero, played by the inimitable William H. Macy. What made our show, our production, unlike any other I've worked on, weren't the actors and the meteoric popularity of the show. What made it beautiful and gratifying were the organic relationships between Lawndale residents and Shameless's cast and crew over time. The ones that you, dear listeners, don't get to see when you watch our show. Families, church pastors, small business owners, kids, grips, directors, actors, greensmen, special effects technicians, all of us got to know one another on a first-name basis. Cast members babysat for little neighborhood kids. Neighborhood kids who were knee-high to a D-chair during season one suddenly found themselves in season five inside Video Village 
with contacts on their ears, getting an impromptu lesson in blocking and continuity. Teenage kids in the neighborhood who had previously only had career role models of corner boy or cop available to them were now getting their IATSE cards to work in the greens or special effects departments. And here we are at last. We've just pulled up in front of the home of those beloved and irrepressible maniacs, Frank Gallagher and his brood. This concludes our audio tour of Shameless as Hero Neighborhood. Thank you for having a listen. You are now free to open your eyes, get out of the scout van, and have a look around. Oh, and please remember to wear your masks and continue social distancing. And don't forget to tip your driver. I'm here all week, folks. In fact, I'm here for the foreseeable future. Thanks so much, Liz, for that wonderfully descriptive audio tour of the neighborhood street from Shameless. I love how the production is involving the neighborhood and, in some cases, giving people from the neighborhood their first jobs. Thanks again to all of my guests for participating in this episode. It was lovely receiving your submissions from places I haven't visited for a long time or places I've never been to. I look forward to meeting you all in person someday soon and talking locations. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, and on Instagram at On Location Podcast. That's it for now. Be well. Please wear your masks. And thanks for joining us, kind of, on location. See you next time. Yeah, yeah.